0: Nero, Part One of the Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. Translated by Alexander Thompson and edited by T. Forrester. Nero, Part One. Paragraphs one to eighteen. Two celebrated families, the Calvini and Ahenobabi, sprung from the race of the Domitii. The Ahenobabi derive both their extraction and their cognomen from one Lucius Domitius, of whom we have this tradition. As he was returning out of the country to Rome, he was met by two young men of a most august appearance, who desired him to announce to the senate and people a victory. Of which no certain intelligence had yet reached the city. To prove that they were more than mortals, they stroked his cheeks, and thus changed his hair, which was black, to a bright colour resembling that of brass, which mark of distinction descended to his posterity, for they had generally red beards. This family had the honour of seven consulships, one triumph and two censorships, and being admitted into the patrician order, they continued the use of the same cognomen, with no other pranomena than those of Cnaeus and Lucius. These, however, they assumed with singular irregularity, three persons in succession sometimes adhering to one of them, and then they were changed alternately. For the first, second, and third of the Henobarbi had the pronomen of Lucius, and again the three following, successively, that of Cnaeus, while those who came after were called by turns one Lucius and the other Cnaeus. It appears to me proper to give a short account of several of the family, to show that Nero so far degenerated from the noble qualities of his ancestors, that he retained only their vices, as if those alone had been transmitted to him by his descent. To begin, therefore, at a remote period, his great-grandfather's grandfather, Cnaeus Domitius, when he was tribune of the people, being offended with the high priests for electing another than himself in the room of his father, Obtained the transfer of the right of election from the colleges of the priests to the people. In his consulship, having conquered the Allobroges and the Arverni, he made a progress through the province, mounted upon an elephant, with a body of soldiers attending him in a sort of triumphal pomp. Of this person the orator Licinius Crassus said, "'It was no wonder he had a brazen beard, who had a face of iron and a heart of lead.' His son, during his praetorship, proposed that Cnaeus Caesar, upon the expiration of his consulship, should be called to account before the senate for his administration of that office, which was supposed to be contrary both to the omens and the laws. Afterwards when he was consul himself he tried to deprive Cnaeus of the command of the army, and having been by intrigue and cabal appointed his successor, he was made prisoner at Corsinium, in the beginning of the civil war being set at liberty, he went to Marseilles, which was then besieged, where, having by his presence animated the people to hold out, he suddenly deserted them, and at last was slain in the battle of Pharsalia. He was a man of little constancy, and of a sullen temper. In despair of his fortunes he had recourse to poison, but was so terrified at the thoughts of death, that immediately repenting he took a vomit to throw it up again, and gave freedom to his physician, for having with great prudence and wisdom given him only a gentle dose of the poison. When Cnaeus Pompey was consulting with his friends in what manner he should conduct himself towards those who were neuter and took no part in the contest, he was the only one who proposed that they should be treated as enemies. He left a son, who was without doubt the best of the family." By the Pedian law he was condemned, although innocent, amongst others who were concerned in the death of Caesar. Upon this he went over to Brutus and Cassius, his near relations, and after their death not only kept together the fleet, the command of which had been given him some time before, but even increased it. At last, when the party had everywhere been defeated, he voluntarily surrendered it to Mark Antony considering it as a piece of service for which the latter owed him no small obligations. Of all those who were condemned by the law above mentioned, he was the only man who was restored to his country, and filled the highest offices. When the civil war again broke out, he was appointed lieutenant under the same Antony, and offered the chief command by those who were ashamed of Cleopatra. But not daring, on account of a sudden indisposition with which he was seized, either to accept or refuse it, he went over to Augustus, and died a few days later, not without an aspersion cast upon his memory. For Antony gave out that he was induced to change sides by his impatience to be with his mistress, Servilia Nice. This Cnaeus had a son, named Domitius, who was afterwards well known as the nominal purchaser of the family property left by Augustus's will, and no less famous in his youth for his dexterity in chariot-driving, than he was afterwards for the triumphal ornaments which he obtained in the German war. But he was a man of great arrogance, prodigality, and cruelty. When he was aedile he obliged Lucius Plancus, the censor, to give him the way, and in his praetorship and consulship he made Roman knights and married women act on the stage. He gave hunts of wild beasts, both in the circus and in all the wards of the city, as also a show of gladiators, but with such barbarity that Augustus, after privately reprimanding him to no purpose, was obliged to restrain him by a public edict. By the elder Antonia he had Nero's father, a man of execrable character in every part of his life. During his attendance upon Caius Caesar in the east, he killed a freedman of his own for refusing to drink as much as he ordered him. Being dismissed for this from Caesar's society, he did not mend his habits, for in a village upon the Appian Road he suddenly whipped his horses and drove his chariot on purpose over a poor boy, crushing him to pieces. At Rome he struck out the eye of a Roman knight in the Forum, only for some free language in a dispute between them. He was likewise so fraudulent, that he not only cheated some silversmiths of the price of goods he had bought of them, but, during his praetorship, defrauded the owners of chariots in the Circensian games of the prizes due to them for their victory. His sister jeering him for the complaints made by the leaders of the several parties, he agreed to sanction a law, that for the future the prizes should be immediately paid." A little before the death of Tiberius he was prosecuted for treason, adulteries, and incest with his sister Lepida, but escaped in the timely change of affairs, and died of a dropsy at Pyrgi, leaving behind him his son Nero, whom he had by Agrippina, the daughter of Germanicus. Nero was born at Antium, nine months after the death of Tiberius, upon the 18th of the calends of January, 15th of December just as the sun rose, so that its beams touched him before they could well reach the earth. While many fearful conjectures, in respect to his future fortune, were formed by different persons from the circumstances of his nativity, a saying of his father Tomicius was regarded as an ill presage, who told his friends, who were congratulating him upon the occasion, that nothing but what was detestable and pernicious to the public could ever be produced of him and Agrippina. Another manifest prognostic of his future infelicity occurred upon his lustration day, for Caius Caesar being requested by his sister to give the child what name he thought proper, looking at his uncle Claudius, who afterwards when Emperor adopted Nero, he gave his, and this not seriously, but only in jest, Agrippina treating it with contempt, because Claudius at that time was a mere laughing-stock at the palace, he lost his father when he was three years old, being left heir to a third part of his estate, of which he never got possession, the whole being seized by his co-heir Caius. His mother being soon after banished, he lived with his aunt Lepida, in a very necessitous condition, under the care of two tutors, a dancing-master and a barber. After Claudius came to the empire, he not only recovered his father's estate, but was enriched by the additional inheritance of that of his stepfather, Crispus Passienus. Upon his mother's recall from banishment, he was advanced to such favour through Nero's powerful interest with the emperor that it was reported assassins were employed by Messalina, Claudius's wife, to strangle him as Britannicus's rival, whilst he was taking his noonday repose. In addition to the story, it was said that they were frightened by a serpent. Which crept from under his cushion and ran away. The tale was occasioned by finding on his couch, near the pillow, the skin of a snake, which, by his mother's order, he wore for some time upon his right arm, enclosed in a bracelet of gold. This amulet at last he laid aside from aversion to her memory, but he sought for it again in vain at the time of his extremity. When he was yet a mere boy, before he arrived at the age of puberty, During the celebration of the Circensian Games he performed his part in the Trojan play with a degree of firmness which gained him great applause. In the eleventh year of his age he was adopted by Claudius, and placed under the tuition of Annaeus Seneca, who had been made a senator. It is said that Seneca dreamt the night after that he was giving a lesson to Caius Caesar. Nero soon verified his dream, betraying the cruelty of his disposition in every way he could for he attempted to persuade his father that his brother, Britannicus, was nothing but a changeling, because the latter had saluted him, notwithstanding his adoption, by the name of Aenobarbus, as usual. When his aunt Lepida was brought to trial, he appeared in court as a witness against her, to gratify his mother, who persecuted the accused. On his introduction to the Forum, at the age of manhood, he gave a largess to the people, and a donative to the soldiers— For the praetorian cohorts he appointed a solemn procession under arms, and marched at the head of them, with a shield in his hand, after which he went to return thanks to his father in the senate. Before Claudius likewise, at the time he was consul, he made a speech for the Bolognese in Latin, and for the Rhodians and people of Ilium in Greek. He had the jurisdiction of prefect of the city for the first time during the Latin festival, during which the most celebrated advocates brought before him not short and trifling causes as is usual in that case but trials of importance notwithstanding they had instructions from claudius himself to the contrary soon afterwards he married octavia and exhibited the circensian games and hunting of wild beasts in honour of claudius he was 17 years of age at the death of that prince and as soon as that event was made public he went out to the cohorts on guard between the hours of six and seven for the omens were so disastrous that no earlier time of the day was judged proper on the steps before the palace gate he was unanimously saluted by the soldiers as their emperor and then carried in a litter to the camp thence after making a short speech to the troops into the senate-house where he continued until the evening of all the immense honours which were heaped upon him refusing none but the title of father of his country, on account of his youth. He began his reign with an ostentation of dutiful regard to the memory of Claudius, whom he buried with the utmost pomp and magnificence, pronouncing the funeral oration himself, and then had him enrolled amongst the gods. He paid likewise the highest honours to the memory of his father, Domitius. He left the management of affairs, both public and private, to his mother. The word which he gave the first day of his reign to the tribune on guard was the best of mothers and afterwards he frequently appeared with her in the streets of rome in her litter he settled a colony at antium in which he placed the veteran soldiers belonging to the guards and obliged several of the richest centurions of the first rank to transfer their residence to that place where he likewise made a noble harbour at a prodigious expense To establish still further his character, he declared that he designed to govern according to the model of Augustus, and omitted no opportunity of showing his generosity, clemency, and complacence. The more burdensome taxes he either entirely took off, or diminished. The rewards appointed for informers by the Papian law he reduced to a fourth part, and distributed to the people four hundred sesterces a man. To the noblest of the senators, who were much reduced in their circumstances, he granted annual allowances, in some cases as much as five hundred thousand sesterces, and to the praetorian cohorts a monthly allowance of corn, gratis. When called upon to subscribe the sentence, according to custom, of a criminal condemned to die, I wish, said he, I had never learnt to read and write. He continually saluted people of the several orders by name, without a prompter, When the Senate returned him their thanks for his good government, he replied to them, "'It will be time enough to do so when I shall have deserved it.' He admitted the common people to see him perform his exercises in the Campus Martius. He frequently declaimed in public, and recited verses of his own composing, not only at home, but in the theatre, so much to the joy of all the people that public prayers were appointed to be put up to the gods upon that account.' and the verses which he had publicly read were, after being written in gold letters, consecrated to Jupiter Capitolinus. He presented the people with a great number and variety of spectacles, as the juvenile and circensian games, stage plays, and an exhibition of gladiators. In the juvenile he even admitted senators and aged matrons to perform parts. In the circensian games he assigned the equestrian order seats apart from the rest of the people, and had races performed by chariots drawn each by four camels. In the games which he instituted for the eternal duration of the empire, and therefore ordered to be called maximi, many of the senatorian and equestrian order of both sexes performed. A distinguished Roman knight descended on the stage by a rope mounted on an elephant. A Roman play, likewise, composed by Afranius, was brought upon the stage. It was entitled The Fire, and in it the performers were allowed to carry off and to keep to themselves the furniture of the house which as the plot of the play required was burnt down in the theatre every day during the solemnity many thousand articles of all descriptions were thrown amongst the people to scramble for such as fowls of different kinds tickets for corn clothes, gold, silver, gems, pearls, pictures, slaves, beasts of burden, wild beasts that had been tamed, at last ships, lots of houses, and lands were offered as prizes in a lottery. These games he beheld from the front of the proscenium. In the show of gladiators, which he exhibited in a wooden amphitheatre, built within a year in the district of the Campus Martius, he ordered that none should be slain, not even the condemned criminals employed in the combats. He secured four hundred senators and six hundred Roman knights, amongst whom were some of unbroken fortunes and unblemished reputation, to act as gladiators. From the same orders he engaged persons to encounter wild beasts, and for various other services in the theatre, He presented the public with the representation of a naval fight, upon sea-water, with huge fishes swimming in it, as also with the pyrrhic dance, performed by certain youths, to each of whom, after the performance was over, he granted the freedom of Rome. During this diversion a bull covered pacify, concealed within a wooden statue of a cow, as many of the spectators believed. Icarus, upon his first attempt to fly fell on the stage close to the emperor's pavilion, and bespattered him with blood. For he very seldom presided in the games, but used to view them reclining on a couch, at first through some narrow apertures, but afterwards with the podium quite open. He was the first who instituted, in imitation of the Greeks, a trial of skill in the three several exercises of music, wrestling, and horse-racing, to be performed at Rome every five years, and which he called Neronia. Upon the dedication of his bath and gymnasium, he furnished the senate and the equestrian order with oil. He appointed as judges of the trial men of consular rank, chosen by lot, who sat with the praetors. At this time he went down into the orchestra amongst the senators, and received the crown for the best performance in Latin prose and verse, for which several persons of the greatest merit contended— but they unanimously yielded to him. The crown for the best performer on the harp being likewise awarded to him by the judges, he devoutly saluted it, and ordered it to be carried to the statue of Augustus. In the gymnastic exercises, which he presented in the sceptre, while they were preparing the great sacrifice of an ox, he shaved his beard for the first time, and putting it up in a casket of gold studded with pearls of great price, consecrated it to Jupiter Capitolinus. He invited the Vestal Virgins to see the wrestlers perform, because at Olympia the priestesses of Ceres are allowed the privilege of witnessing that exhibition. Amongst the spectacles presented by him, the solemn entrance of Tiridates into the city deserves to be mentioned. This personage, who was king of Armenia, he invited to Rome by very liberal promises— but being prevented by unfavourable weather from showing him to the people upon the day fixed by proclamation, he took the first opportunity which occurred, several cohorts being drawn up under arms about the temples in the Forum, while he was seated on a curule chair on the rostra, in a triumphal dress amidst the military standards and ensigns. Upon Tiridates advancing towards him, on a stage made shelving for the purpose, he permitted him to throw himself at his feet, but quickly raised him with his right hand, and kissed him. The Emperor then, at the King's request, took the turban from his head, and replaced it by a crown, whilst a person of Praetorian rank proclaimed in Latin the words in which the Prince addressed the Emperor as a suppliant. After this ceremony the King was conducted to the theatre, where, after renewing his obeisance, Nero seated him on his right hand. Being then greeted by universal acclamation with the title of Emperor, and sending his laurel crown to the capital, Nero shut the temple of the two-faced Janus, as though there now existed no war throughout the Roman Empire. He filled the consulship four times, the first for two months, the second and last for six, and the third for four. The two intermediate ones he held successively, but the others after an interval of some years between them in the administration of justice he scarcely ever gave his decision on the pleadings before the next day and then in writing his manner of hearing causes was not to allow any adjournment but to despatch them in order as they stood when he withdrew to consult his assessors he did not debate the matter openly with them but silently and privately reading over their opinions which they gave separately in writing he pronounced sentence from the tribunal according to his own view of the case, as if it was the opinion of the majority. For a long time he would not admit the sons of freedmen into the Senate, and those who had been admitted by former princes he excluded from all public offices. To supernumerary candidates he gave command in allegiance, to comfort them under the delay of their hopes. The consulship he commonly conferred for six months— and one of the two consuls dying a little before the 1st of January, he substituted no one in his place, disliking what had been formerly done for Caninius Rebilus on such an occasion, who was consul for one day only. He allowed the triumphal honours only to those who were of quaestorian rank, and to some of the equestrian order, and bestowed them without regard to military service. And instead of the quaestors, whose office it properly was, he frequently ordered that the addresses which he sent to the senate on certain occasions should be read by the consuls. He devised a new style of building in the city, ordering piazzas to be erected before all houses, both in the streets and detached, to give facilities from their terraces, in case of fire, for preventing it from spreading, and these he built at his own expense. He likewise designed to extend the city walls as far as Ostia, and bring the sea from thence by a canal into the old city. Many severe regulations and new orders were made in his time. A sumptuary law was enacted, public suppers were limited to the sportulae, and victualling-houses restrained from selling any dressed victuals except pulse and herbs, whereas before they sold all kinds of meat. He likewise inflicted punishments on the Christians, a sort of people who held a new and impious superstition. He forbade the revels of the charioteers, who had long assumed a licence to stroll about, and establish for themselves a kind of prescriptive right to cheat and thieve, making a jest of it. The partisans of the rival theatrical performers were banished, as well as the actors themselves. To prevent forgery, a method was then first invented of having writings bored, run through three times with a thread, and then sealed. It was likewise provided that in wills, the two first pages with only the testator's name upon them should be presented blank to those who were to sign them as witnesses, and that no one who wrote a will for another should insert any legacy for himself. It was likewise ordained that clients should pay their advocates a certain reasonable fee, but nothing for the court which was to be gratuitous, the charges for it being paid out of the public treasury that causes the cognizance of which before belonged to the judges of the exchequer should be transferred to the forum and the ordinary tribunals and that all appeals from the judges should be made to the senate he never entertained the least ambition or hope of augmenting and extending the frontiers of the empire on the contrary he had thoughts of withdrawing the troops from britain and was only restrained from so doing by the fear of appearing to detract from the glory of his father. All that he did was to reduce the kingdom of Pontus, which was ceded to him by Polymon and also the Alps upon the death of Cotius, into the form of a province. End of Nero part one.